Welcome to the second season of Democracy, the podcast that shines light on some of the darkest challenges facing the fight for democracy around the globe. Brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening in partnership and funding from our friends at the United States Agency for International Development through the Democratic Elections Political Processes Cooperative Agreement. I'm your host, Adrian Ross. In the early hours of Thursday, February 24, 2022, the Russian army launched an illegal, unprovoked assault on Ukraine, shattering peace on the European continent, creating upheaval and chaos in a nation that had just marked 30 years of hard-fought independence. Now, nearly a year into this war, SEPS goes in-depth on the fight for Ukraine's sovereignty. In the first of this four-part mini-series, Defending Democracy Ukraine Under Fire, we pull from the consortium's 20-plus years of partnership with Ukrainians to bring you first-hand accounts of this brutal war. From Kyiv to the front lines, you'll begin to understand what Ukrainians are enduring for freedom, hear their greatest hopes for the future, and witness the remarkable courage it takes to defend democracy in these unimaginable times. Amy Redlinski now with more. For more than 30 years, ever since the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Ukrainians have navigated unrelenting volatility and political turbulence to propel their nation towards freedom. Amid three revolutions, Ukrainians have improved responsiveness and accountability of local governments and political parties, and promoting participation from all their citizens. Despite these gains to build a government for the people, by the people, Since 2014, they have also endured Russian aggression in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. In fact, in 2022, the territory was already under Russian occupation when Vladimir Putin gathered hundreds of thousands of military forces and heavy weaponry at the border. Ultimately launching a full-scale assault on the country, Putin sent troops over the Ukrainian border from the north, south, and east, targeting government and military institutions with airstrikes, missiles, troops, and tanks with the clear goal of taking Kyiv, the capital. Hanna Hopko is a long-standing SEPS partner. She chairs the board of the National Interest Advocacy Network. This is a group founded by Euromaidan activists who also served in parliament when the revolution ended in 2014. While in office, Hanna chaired Ukraine's Foreign Affairs Committee. Today, she travels the world asking for help from friends and allies high visibility that has landed her directly in Russia's crosshairs. We caught up with her in Warsaw, where she told me about the moment she learned Russian troops were advancing on Kyiv and the tough choices she had to make. Many friends were like telling me, like, Hannah, you should think about leaving Ukraine because you are in the assassination list together with other activists. So your life is under threat. So please consider it seriously. I knew about this, but at that time, I thought that for people like me, it's important to be in Ukraine, to stay in Kiev and demonstrate the whole world that we will fight and we will not allow Russians to occupy our capital. We will not surrender. So we are not afraid. And we, with my husband and Guinea Peak State, I stated in uh, Kiev in our flat, and when um, uh, February 24 in the morning, Russia started to bomb Kiev, we were still deciding what to do. 
So uh, I, I was in Kiev, but then uh, moved 30 kilometers outside Kiev because of this all information that Wagner groups and uh, Kadyrov guys, if they occupy Kiev, they have a list what they did in Kherson region with my friends, patriots. They came to their families, tortured, killed. And what we've seen, these collective graves in Mariupol and Kherson, Izum, in Kharkiv region. So this is why I decided like to live outside Kiev. But then many foreigners, higher level officials, came to Poland, to Rzeszów. My friend told me, Hanna, with your foreign affairs committee experience, why you are staying in Ukraine? You should be here and talk to these people and convince them to help Ukraine to provide weapons, to impose tougher sanctions. Come here. And almost in one week period, I left to Poland and we established the International Center for Ukrainian Victory. And we launched the center on March 4. March 4, why it's symbolic for me? Because it's my uh, birthday. And for me, uh, it was really um, very heartbreaking. So I remember all our TV interviews. It was hard to stop crying. And seeing how Russians used vacuum bombs and deliberately attacked theaters, uh, hospitals, maternity hospitals. Seeing these pictures, this was like, like without crying, you cannot accept this reality, honestly. And then uh, my friend like, was like, stop crying because you have to be very strong and mobilize the world to support Ukraine to win, to defeat Russia. But crying will not help you and people who are under occupation, will not help your armed forces, you, because uh, it's really very physically hard every time, but it was really very hard to focus because I was thinking about these people, raped uh, women, kids, all these family tragedies. So this unstoppable work helped uh, not to, to die of crying. It's about your moral duty to serve your country. For five years, from 2014 to 2019, I served my country advocating for tougher sanctions against Russia, a recognition of uh, Russian Federation as a state sponsor of terrorism, uh, many campaigns to release Ukrainian hostages. And it's very sad because one of them, Hennady Afanasyev, a political prisoner who was sitting in jail for his position against annexation of Crimea. Two years, he was almost like in captivity. He was released in 2016 and he was just uh, uh, yesterday killed in the front line defending Ukraine. So within these nine years, it's a marathon when you have no luxury to cry or to be weak, you have to be strong because at stake the future of your kids, your future grandkids, your nation. What has it been like to keep talking about Ukraine and to talk about Ukrainians' needs to the whole world? It's really important to explain to the whole world and mobilize resources, uh, political will, public support, and not to allow this uh, Russian fatigue 
to decrease the level of support and understanding why victory of Ukraine is in strategic interest of the West in global communities and uh, Russia with China support, with Iran, North Korea, Belarus. So this is why democracies should demonstrate solidarity, unity, and consolidate efforts not to allow this authoritarian club to attack not just Ukraine, because we know their goal is a global dominance. Hannah, you've been on the record in many, many places talking about Ukraine's need for weapons and, and support from Western countries. Recently, you made a lot of headlines when you said democracy without weapons is just blah, blah, blah. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say that? So let's be very frank. Uh, the sooner we reach parity with Russia on heavy arms, the faster the war will end with Ukraine's victory. Because without NATO standard, heavy armor, artillery, and air defense system, ammunition and equipment, which we need to be able to continue counteroffensive operations. Everyone say, oh, Ukraine is a shield of Europe. But let's be honest, we don't want to be shield because we are dying. Ukraine is bleeding. Give us shields for each soldier of Ukraine, NATO standard weapons, and then we will contribute to the global security. But we don't want to be considered as just shield because the price we are paying, it's lives. My best friend, Andriana Susak, she just visited the Pentagon in September. She was heavily wounded because of lack of armored vehicles. Of course, we want to save lives because people who are now defending Ukraine with a risk to be killed, they are the future of Ukraine. They have to be protected by modern ammunition, armored vehicles after victory to be part of modernization of our economy, armed forces, and also building strong Ukraine. Because victory is not just about defeating Russia. It's about building strong institutions. It's about rule of law. It's about a successful model for the whole democratic world. Like Ukraine defeated this imperialistic Russia and then became a true example of powerful democracy with all institutions and other characteristics. How is Adriana? Is she okay? She is uh, recovering. Uh, she is in military hospital now, but uh, we cannot say about speedy recovery. I told her, like, God helped you to survive, and now you have to <laughs> recover faster. And um, she's like, oh, I'll be back to the battlefield. I say, look, <laughs> now you will continue. That's so fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but this is the, how people, they have this resilience, this fighting spirit. You are a politics and journalism expert by schooling. Can you help us better understand the role media and information is playing in this war? Truth matters. And uh, unfortunately, I must uh, say that international reporting on Russian war against Ukraine since 2014 deserves criticism. The biggest criticism is that unprovoked aggressor Russia has enjoyed a disproportionately larger voice than innocent victim of uh, Ukraine. Consequently, a number of Russian fake propaganda narratives have become part of Western media landscape with direct consequences on the political decision-making. The most detrimental prevailing narratives in major international media, even until today, 
is the narratives about Ukraine war or war in Ukraine. So uh, they orchestrated uh, all of this. And it was hard to convince even the most influential media, please stop using conflict, start use war, but Russian war against Ukraine. So changing the language is one way to fix this information system. Is there anything else you would like to see changed? So I'm very thankful to journalists, journalists who are working now in Ukraine, because it's really important because before there were many uh, foreign correspondents of the most influential media uh, writing about Ukraine being in Moscow. So I'm really thankful for those who are working in Ukraine, especially my condolences to the families of those who lost journalists working in the war zones. It's really uh, their sacrifice and uh, the price they paid to deliver truth. But there are still countries where we have uh, media censorship, like China, also, there are double standards or in different uh, media in, uh, in India we faced and other countries. So we still have to invest in media independence and not allow authoritarian regime actually to use their influence on media to deliver Russian propaganda, not truth. We've seen Russia weaponize information, food, energy, even water in Mykolaiv, and now winter. And you've talked about this a little bit. But what do the next few months look like for Ukrainians? These are going to be the most challenging months since the Second World War that any European nations has endured. Let's be frank. And the scale of humanitarian, economic, energy, culture, environmental ecocide deliberately inflicted by Russia is of historic proportion. So Russia's obliteration of Ukrainian civilian infrastructure is meant to force Ukrainians to flee, to entirely crush the Ukrainian economy and deprive our armed forces of support. Just on my way from Ukraine, at Ukraine-Polish border, I saw and helped to take heavy boxes for two elderly women, a mom and a daughter, like 65 and 88 years old. When I saw them with four heavy bags, and uh, I, I uh, tried to help them and ask, like, what are, why are you leaving? Because we are from Kherson. They destroyed our house. We have no place to live. And these four bags, this everything we have. I think that we have been warning about this Russian strategy of terror for this winter since the spring. Unfortunately, our voices were not heard or taken seriously. No one wanted to believe that Russia would devolve into an openly terrorist regime. I'm thankful to those nations who already recognize Russian aggression as a genocide. Why it's important? Because uh, Russian goal is to destroy Ukraine nation, Ukraine, because we are Ukrainians. For centuries, we were fighting for uh, freedom. This is why we consistently defend our values even at the cost of massive sacrifices in the face of threats uh, that are much bigger than us. It's a part of our identity, like freedom is our religion. And uh, this is why what Russians, uh, with their imperialistic nature of statehood, they don't understand why for us, we prefer to die for freedom than to be in slavery. Now, 90% of the population think if Russia even if Russia continue 
to terrorize us, uh, destroying political infrastructure, trying to freeze it, we will remain such higher level of fighting spirit and resistance because uh, we understand that either we win or concentrational camps will be on all territories where Russian occupiers are. What is happening? And that's not an option. Yes, it's not an option for us. So this is why we're trying to explain our Western friends, uh, our partners, only military defeat of Russia. What is your greatest hope for the end of this war? The greatest hope for the end of this is, of course, justice. Because uh, all families, the victims of Russian genocide, we have to take care of them. And justice, all the people like Putin, collective Putin, Russian armed forces, Russian society, they have to go through justice. I think the most important is that my daughter and my grandkids, they will never face the genocide like we are now. And they will never be forced to flee their country, their homeland. You have to do everything possible. Ukraine defeat Russian imperialists. The future generations of Ukrainians, they will contribute to innovations. And since Ukraine is a very rich country of talented people. So this is our role, not just to be breadbasket or security guarantor of the world. I want the new generations of Ukrainians not to focus how to defeat Russia, imperialism, authoritarianism, how to uh, become a global contributor to democracy. And there are many people who join Ukrainian armed forces now, brave Chechen people who are helping us to win. And I will enjoy meeting these people and they will not be under the repression uh, from FSB and they will have right to speak to write post on Facebook and no one will come and punish them and put in jail. So this will be also our contribution to see the world free from authoritarian repression machine. Hannah, let's leave it there. You're such an inspiration. We wish you better days ahead and we certainly wish Adriana a speedy recovery. Thank you so much for Everyone who supported Ukraine, who believe in our victory, let's win together. Another patriot who believes in Ukraine's democracy with his whole heart is Slava Lepetsky. Before the invasion, Slava worked in the International Republican Institute's Kyiv office, helping SEP strengthen democracy by training thousands of political party poll watchers. But as Russian missiles rained down on his homeland, Slava knew exactly what he had to do. Now I defend democracy. You cannot talk about defend democracy. And in, if it's, it's happened, you must to do this. And anyway, uh, your word is nothing. You've been working on democracy for many, many years, have you not? Yes, and it's my, my religion now. Uh, maybe you remember this slogan on our uh, trade union building, uh, freedom is our religion and democracy is my religion. When Soviet Union destroyed, I saw how the reality is totally different. 
watched on TV or read in newspaper. And it's changed to me. A lot of people understand how freedom, how democracy important. And they're ready to defend this with weapons. They're ready to fight for these uh, issues. And it's amazing how it's work and how small Ukraine, but with brave people, people who understand what is the freedom, what is the democracy, what is the purpose to influence on government, how it's important in their life. Can you take us back to February 24th? How has your life changed? I received a phone call from my colleague, Victoria Shiluk, and 5.15, she told me, Slava, war started. I immediately take my backpack with everything and went to recruiting center. In 5.40, I signed the paper, and 11 p.m., I will be in my brigade camp. In uh, February 28, I won in Kostobel and fighting with uh, Russian uh, paratroopers. I did everything what I can to defend my colleagues, to defend my country from February 28 till May. Yes, I feel fear, uh, but it's different kind of uh, fear. One fear killed you. One fear mobilized you. My fear mobilized me every time. And uh, I, again, around me was uh, perfect guys who helped me, who saved my life, who saved my hand. What happened to your hand? Unfortunately, I received, I received uh, one piece of metal in my head. Helmet saved my life. Uh, and two pieces in my hand. Unfortunately, both hands in one time. One broken my uh, bone from left side, broken my uh, nerves. That's why now my right hand is not bad, but left I cannot use for 100%. There's so much to ask you and talk about, but you obviously had a lot of time while you were fighting to think about democracy and democracy in Ukraine. It's very interesting what people uh, during our discussion after uh, operation, they asked me about politicians and sometimes I destroyed a lot of myths about politics. People, guys, politics, it's everything what you have in your life. It's everything politics. And it's the worst things which Ukrainian politics um, did for Ukrainian uh, voters. And they say, oh, please, if you don't touch politics, it's our job, not your. Just vote for me one time and nothing else. They don't care about this. Please, if you know, if you feel what you can change something on your villages, on your Ryan, your building, participate in politics. Can you draw the line between the work that you're doing with SEPS IRI in Ukraine, the political programming, the support of mayors, institutions, all that kind of work, to the fight and the war? Why are those two things equal and, and equally important right now while you're at war with Russia? I can say my work in uh, this politician party and Leo much important than now. This would job for a short period. 
yeah, more important, more dangerous and more bloody. But if we are talking about society, work with uh, mind of the people, with politic party, with politicians, with uh, local elected deputies, more important. During this war, we've seen local government become more important than ever. The mayors, the locally elected officials. Can you talk a little bit about what you've witnessed in local government and how that working together has continued to help Ukraine fight the Russians? Because uh, they more closer to voters and people with their problems go to the mayor. Please give me water, give me electricity, or give me food. So democracy has become a little more apparent to people, perhaps. They they see how it works and why coming out to vote and support freedom of choice is more important. Yeah. But again, during my conversation with my colleague on frontline, I say you every time responsible for your voices, for your choices. <laughs> you cannot say, no, 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 no. I am did not come to poll station. That's why I don't care about it. It's not my choice. I say, yeah, it's your choice. What kind of work have you been doing now that you're back in the office with the political programming? Have you have you been supporting parties or where have you been focused the most right now? We have now European Solidarity and it's well-organized political party. From other hand, we have majority in the parliament and a lot of majority in the, a lot of main in major city around Ukraine is the uh, servant of the people party but I cannot say what they grow very quickly and we have 18% people who now who still to or not maybe less maybe 10% still to thinking about Russia is our friend and of course, they vote for pro-Russia political party. So your your thought about the future and your future work is that it needs to be more holistic to all of society. Yeah. So perhaps democracy is more accessible yeah. and understood by Ukrainians? Yeah. First of all, it's education about the responsibility of the government. Who for what responsible? Because people have broken elevator in the home and they sent letter to president. And second, what guys, politics, it's interesting. It's it's have influence for all your life, all pieces of your life, not whole life, all everything. And if you feel what you can change something, please participate. That's why I try to invite new faces on my seminars. I, when I spoke with political party, please give me fresh faces. And I'm very happy what IRI and we as representatives IRI have the voice and a lot of political party listen to this voice. And they started to listen people, not just to read uh, a report from local party organization, but everything is okay. But they started to hear people from side. And like for me, it's perfect step for future political party, for growing a healthy political organization. I spent uh, 15 years to receive such result. To have Ukrainians understand how to be involved in democracy 
and that it's Ukrainian owned. I think it's very important. It's very perfect for SAP's results. I understand it's not visible. You cannot put this on paper or show for donors, but it's very important to us and for future of country. So put the power to the people. Yeah, it's your decision, your political party, your voters, your team, what, how they fix it. But we advocated, it's not create audit. We have, we look at the problem. It's, it's too slow, everything. All process is very slow. And unfortunately, maybe it's like mentality. Oh, it's, it's, maybe it's wrong, it's, it's working. We keep it. Don't destroy nothing. It, if it's it's not working perfectly, it's don't give result. But oh no 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 changes. Well, we know democracies are fragile, and we know that they're always a work in progress. <sighs> but getting people to always know that is sometimes difficult. They understand what is democracy. Uh, why? If you are looking for the territory who can under control now under Russia. Look at for Crimea people who after eight years of Russia occupation ready to go on demonstration and defended their rights. Do you think it's much different in, in among the people understanding in, in Crimea versus Kiev, for instance? No, I think no. If you're talking, it's not different between democracy. It's about talking about propaganda. Crimea people wants to have big salary as they think in Russia or build big freedom as they think in Russia because it's Russia creates this myth again. Uh, that's why they fighting can use democracy tools for fighting for their rights as they see and as they feel. If you could tell the world one thing about Ukraine right now, what would it be? Everybody do something to create and to build big, powerful anthill. anthill. I want to say just thank you very much, all Americans who support us. And I want to say big thanks for American taxpayer. Without your taxes and your... I think everything finished here. Much, much, much quicker. That's why I thank you. I want to say thank you very much, uh, Americans, uh, people, Americans, taxpayer, who support us. And um, in this situation, show who is a real friend and who is an enemy. Thank you so much for your frank stories and your candor on democracy and the situation in Ukraine. Slava, we wish you the best. As the Kremlin's ground war escalated, Russia also took their assault into cyberspace. Using a weapon called Foxblade, they attacked the country's critical infrastructure and military systems. We turn now to Matt Bailey, the International Foundation for Electoral Systems Senior Global Advisor for Cyber and Information Integrity with more. Matt recently returned from Kyiv where he assessed Ukrainian cyber defenses and even their ability to hold secure elections when they're ready. 
This question of post-war digital and cyber requirements is actually really timely. Even though the conflict is continuing, there have been fresh waves of, of attacks directly on Kyiv and across the country. The government, the individuals on the street, everybody's already thinking about what comes after the war, what comes after the conflict, uh, what's the future of democracy in Ukraine. And there's a couple things that are really critical. Um, the first is that you know, there may not be a clean moment where it's obvious that the war in the real world or in, in cyberspace is over. And I think that's doubly true of cyberspace. So you may have a moment where peace comes to Ukraine, where there's a formal perhaps end of hostilities, but cyber attacks, you know, as we know from, from the United States and our continuing concerns about cyber attacks on our infrastructure, including during elections, are likely to continue. So a lot of the discussion that I was having there was with a lot of different folks, civil society, government, and otherwise, to say, what is Ukraine going to need over the long haul? And particularly through that moment where it transitions from war to peace and elections, what is it going to need in terms of support? But a lot of the discussion we were having was with folks who were worried about uh, the security of future elections, the security of critical services for Ukrainians that they'll need to access. You know, a lot of this discussions at a higher level, thinking about how do we manage the risk that the whole country is likely to face in the context of cybersecurity, rather than looking at individual computers and saying, hey, is your password strong enough or do you need a better firewall? So what did you find while you were talking to these people in Kiev? Are they yeah. cyber ready? You know, as ready as you can be, you know, Ukraine, Kiev, but also across the country, it's one of the most sophisticated governments, cultures and economies in terms of cybersecurity, in terms of technology on the planet. I mean, they, they really know what they're doing. And of course, you can see that in terms of the sort of the cyber offensive aspect of the conflict and in terms of the social media game that the government Ukrainians are bringing. This is not like a bunch of folks who just woke up and realized the internet matters because there's a conflict. But on the other hand, the attacks they're facing are incredibly sophisticated, well-funded, and sustained. And so the needs here are not necessarily just about like, again, teaching people the XYZ of, of cybersecurity or how to protect themselves. It's about how to build long-term democratic resilience and cybersecurity resilience for the country in this new environment. So you were looking at more than just the electoral systems. Yeah. I mean, it's every part of civilian life and government in Ukraine is under attack in cyberspace right now. Um, that was true before the actual hostilities began. Uh, and it's certainly true in this environment. Um, so you're dealing with sustained uh, what are called DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service attacks, sustained hacking campaigns, uh, disinformation campaigns that kind of are riding off the back of that, uh, all sorts of crazy stuff going on. It's a world in which you're trying to not just understand what's the latest set of attacks, but actually build, proactively build for security against who knows what's going to come next. So why is it important to track cyber attacks in Ukraine now? I mean, you've sort of touched on this, but, but why now? I mean, there's so many other things to worry about. There's room for not just for, you know, missiles to, to interrupt critical infrastructure like water or heat or electricity, but for cyber attacks to do the exact same thing. So these, these attacks just on a day in day out basis and affecting people's quality of life, their ability to go about business, but also to survive is very much uh, rooted in cyberspace as well as the real world. But also tracking these, the cyber attacks that are happening, the specific types of attacks 
how they're being coordinated with these larger scale of aggression against Ukraine is really also critical for, for Europe and for the world to understand what might come next if there's a continuing escalation in hostilities. We've seen attacks against other countries that have shown solidarity with Ukraine, like Lithuania, against their infrastructure as well. And so understanding what these attacks look like, how they're evolving, and how they relate to sort of the, the geopolitical sphere, the larger situation in the world, is really, really critical, not just for Ukraine, but for everybody to understand how to protect ourselves and protect democracy around the world. So we know in the days leading up to the invasion, February 24th, that the Russians were mm -hmm. using a cyber weapon called Foxblade. And there's been a lot of discussion about this online. What can you tell us about it and, and how does it work? Countries, especially wealthier ones around the world, are stockpiling what are called exploits. And so what an exploit is, is it's basically like a, a vulnerability that's never been discovered before, or at least not publicly in commonly used software or systems. So Foxblade, um, if I understand correctly, was using an exploit in Microsoft's uh, database server software. So it's very, very commonly used in government, in small and large business all around the world and certainly in, in Ukraine. Think of it as like an unlocked back door, an unlocked window as a way to get inside of systems that Russian military wanted to target. You know, sometimes these types of attacks are very broad spectrum. They'll just sort of like try to hack into any computer that's attached to the internet or within a kind of a geographic area. Uh, in this case, Foxblade appears to have been used in a very relatively surgical or precise manner to target critical infrastructure, uh, government, military systems within the country. So as you had tanks and military personnel rolling across the border into Ukraine, you also had this malware attack being deployed against what we think of as sort of critical infrastructure within the country. What it enables is almost anything, frankly. So it was being used to delete data. So to think of it as like wiping the accounts off of government servers so that people can't log in and do their jobs to extract usernames and passwords but also it allows those computers, and this is a very common thing, to be taken over, almost like used as zombies, to then also conduct further attacks. So Foxblade was uh, sort of the tip of the spear for cyber attacks uh, against Ukraine as the parallel real-world attacks were taking place, and it enabled a whole bunch of different types of mischief, ranging from deleting data to actually weaponizing the systems that it was used to infect. And do we still see that today or did that go away in February? When these types of attacks are, are detected, in this case, Microsoft actually had a really critical role in detecting that these attacks were happening against their software and, and supporting the response. What you can start doing is called patching. So you can patch individual systems that are uh, either infected or susceptible to being infected. And then you can start trying to basically clean up the servers. So there's been a, an amazing response uh, in part supported by Microsoft and by US government, Ukrainian government, so forth to, to get this under control. But unfortunately, a great number of servers and systems around the world remain unpatched to this particular vulnerability. But more worryingly, there's no doubt that Russian intelligence services and military have a bunch more exploits that they're just sort of sitting on and waiting for the right moment to use. So Foxblade was a particular and sort of novel attack at that moment. But the reality remains that you could see similar or new types of attacks like this any given day. 
So what is IFAS going to do to help Ukrainians protect themselves from future and ongoing cyber attacks? There's no shortage of aid that's being supplied by the international community, supporting all different aspects of cybersecurity and, and other needs for Ukrainians and the Ukrainian government. What we're particularly worried about is that moment where there's a transition from a wartime emergency footing to being able to need to conduct the next round of elections. There are meant to be elections in 2023, 2024 in Ukraine, and, and all of this will be affected by the emergency, by the conflict that's continuing. But there's going to be a, a real moment of scramble to make that round of elections timely, secure, and creditable, uh, something that we, we sometimes struggle with under the best circumstances around the world these days. So what we're doing is we're really working in tandem with every possible stakeholder around the elections, whether that's the election commission, whether that's civil society, to understand what are all the risks, what are all the needs for that kind of all hands on deck moment for those first and, and subsequent rounds of elections from a cybersecurity standpoint, as well as just more broadly. We're worried about how many voting booths, physical voting booths can we locate? And how do you get back in touch with all the voters and make sure the voting role is intact and, and has integrity? All of these questions are going to be really, really critical, unprecedentedly complex, and cybersecurity has an overlay over all of them. So if you had to rate how Ukrainians are set up to manage the future, how would you rate them? I was just profoundly impressed by everybody that I spoke with, whatever their role, whatever their personal circumstances, because of course, many of these folks, whether they're civil servants or journalists or everyday people are struggling with personal trauma and adversity. Their families are flung around the world in some cases. In the face of all of that, the attention to detail, the attention to continuity of government, continuity of what it means to be Ukrainian and of, of democracy was incredible across the board. Matt Bailey, IFAS's Senior Cyber and Information Integrity Advisor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For the most up-to-date information on SEP's democratic support, don't forget to check the show notes. On the next episode, straight from the front lines, the people of Mykolaiv are not giving up or giving in. Russians still think that if they kill the mayor, the city will give up. And for sure, they don't know how democracy works. Now their brave mayor, Oleksandr Sinkovich, sits down with me to tell his tough city story. Plus, hear from three members of Ukraine's parliament who will let nothing stop them from upholding their sworn duties to their country. Democracy, the podcast, is brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening through the Democratic Elections Political Processes Cooperative Agreement and is made possible by the generous support of the American people through the United States Agency for International Development. Opinions expressed here are those of the host and the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views of USAID or the United States government. This podcast is produced by Evo Terra and Sam Walker of Simpler Media Productions. For more information on Democracy, the podcast, and to access the complete archives, please visit seps.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.